Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos' picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds, and 66 clinics have stopped performing abortions since the Dobbs ruling. What an excellent show we have today. First, we're joined by the New York Times' Maggie Haberman, who's going to talk to us all about her blockbuster new book, Confidence Man, The Making of Donald Trump. And she's going to tell Molly some things she's told no one else. Then we're joined by John Anzalone of Impact Research, who's also known as Biden's pollster. And he's going to tell us some unconventional wisdom about what to look out for in the midterm elections. But first, we're joined by the New York Times, the run-up podcast host, Ested Herndon, who's going to also talk to us about the midterms. Welcome to Fast Politics, area podcaster Ested. No, I'm just kidding. New York Times podcaster. <laughs> hey, an area nonetheless. So <laughs> I wasn't offended. <laughs> An area on 42nd Street. Is it still on 42nd Street? Yes, right? Yeah, it would not be Times Square without that. Uh, without me getting out of Port Authority to the <laughs> confluence of smells outside of the New York Times. Let's talk about your podcast because it's super interesting. And then we will go from there to talk about the subject of your podcast. Your podcast is called... The Run-Up. And explain to us the idea behind it. Yeah, the idea is that we're always in the run-up to some election and that in elections, you have the opportunity to explore more than just who's going to win, but the kind of why and the themes that are animating the country at any given time. And so our goal was to take these elections as a vehicle to really try to explore some like deeper political questions about stuff like our commitment to democracy or how Christian nationalism has creeped up in politics or about why everyone was so prized in front of the 2016 election. So just the basic idea is using elections to talk about the country and where we are rather than just who's up and who's down. So let's talk about where we are because I don't think we're in a good place. Yeah. That's my professional <laughs> podcasting opinion. You know, I I, I don't <laughs> think many would disagree with you. <laughs> but honestly, there's a lot of writing about this idea that we're in the, the chaos elections, that there is not an overriding trend the way there have been in previous elections, but in fact, different micro trends in different places, like we have Kansas that has abortion, we have other places where, you know, Republicans Republicans have have sought to make the message about crime, which somehow they somehow people think Republicans are better on crime. I would argue they are not. But I'm curious to know what what you're seeing. Do you think this is a chaos election? And if not, what do you think it is? Well, I think we've been in several of those type of elections. I remember the night of the 2020 election thinking like, oh, wow, like this is really choose your own adventure. Like you can really see whatever trend you want. And there's real evidence and justification for it, right? If you want to say that Democrats were improving with Latino voters, you could look at Arizona. If you wanted to say they were cratering, you could look at Texas and Florida. If you wanted to say that Trump did better than expected, you could point to a bunch of states where he outperformed polling. If you wanted to say that Democrats had new life, you could look at Georgia, you know? I think that we have been 
in these kind of state of micro trends across the national landscape, because I think that's where a lot of voters are. They can self-select their own media. They can live in a kind of bunker of their own kind of politics. And neither of those silos are really speaking to each other. I think in this election, you have kind of similar themes. I think I'm on the Republican side. You do have a big theme. Donald Trump and Trumpism won in the primaries. That was pretty true across the landscape of Republican politics. So I do think there's a kind of more unified story on that side. On the Democratic side, I think you have certainly a more traditional slate of candidates who have been using particularly abortion to try to run up enthusiasm on the base. But I think that that is pretty universal on that side too. So I don't think that there aren't things we can say about the parties at large. But I do think to your point that each of these elections has a deep local flavor. And so if you're saying, why X candidate might win versus why other candidate might win. I don't think you can say a single story about that. But there, I think right. there are, I would say Trumpism largely is the, is the Republican wrestling. And I think the reaction to Dobbs and the referendum on Biden is largely the Democratic wrestling. What races are you seeing that you've been sort of interested in that have sort of surprised you or, you know, where you've been like, what is happening here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think for me, the first question and kind of a core question here is like, would moderate Republicans or swingy voters like there is usually we expected midterm elections for them to really backlash against the party in power. Right. That's how it, this right. usually goes. But this time, the, 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 the biggest decision or political change that came from the country this year didn't come from the president. Right. It came from the Supreme Court. And so right. will those swing voters back Democrats? in terms of rallying closer to abortion rights, because most of those people do favor a kind of pro-choice platform? Or will they come around to a Republican who are hammering on inflation, hammering on crime? I think that for me, the top the, the, the question by November has to be which one of those issues has the most primacy and why it was clearly not abortion at the beginning of the year and then clearly became abortion rights by the summer and fall. But I don't know if that's where we're going to end November at. You're kind of seeing polls tell a different story now. I think whichever one of those issues ends up at the top will give us a lot of clues here. And I think the other thing that we've been watching all year is just how bad some of these Republican Senate candidates are, which have really given Democrats openings that they didn't expect in some of these states. Yeah, I'm curious about this because this week has been like a continual Herschel Walker news cycle, October surprise that everyone knew about on the Republican side anyway. Talk to me about what you're seeing there. In some ways, you're right. This is like a kind of classic political surprise scandal. And in other ways, it's the most expected scandal of the year, right? (laughs) Right. Like there was no one in Democratic politics, Republican politics, media, who thought Herschel Walker was a vetted candidate, right? Right. There's literally no one. His Republican primary opponents were saying that this was someone who has skeletons in the closet. There were media reports about his long history of violence against women and others. I mean, there was every sign humanly possible. And the Republican primary electorate in Georgia still backed him because he was Donald Trump's preferred candidate. That has led us to the, again, I think the most expected October surprise where you're seeing these stuff trickle out. And I mean, the reporting, you know, the da- what the Daily Beast has done has been crystal clear. Like, there is no question of fact. There is no question of corroboration. There is no question of, like, clarity. Even the Republicans I've talked to this week haven't really believed his defense. They kind of admit that he would be lying in his statements and response. But what they also say is they don't care. And I think that right. that is the key point for us. And what we tried to do in terms of understanding where Christian conservatives are on the podcast recently is that it has clearly become a bargain about power. So much so that like the idea that this individual candidate was hypocritical on abortion is one that a lot of people who are already Republicans right now who have voted for Donald Trump, they're very ready to cast aside. They've already backed the president who has had three divorces, who has had sexual right. assault allegations, right, right, who has right, right. like said a whole bunch of bad words in public. They've, They've already done that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So voting for Herschel Walker is not some step too far for these people. You know, they've already made that kind of horse trade that's specifically about power. It's so interesting that you talk about this because Dana Lash said, right, I don't care if he killed baby bald eagles. I want the control of the Senate, right? Like 
we're really seeing Republicans pretended to believe in evangelical values until the life of the political candidate was at risk, right? I would say that's actually a little too simple, right? I would say that for a lot of evangelicals, this is a long-running conversation for evangelicals. In the reporting we did in our show about the way the evangelical movement has changed, Al Mohler, the head of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, was pretty clear that, like, he felt that the country changed in, in, in like five, six years ago and has become so secular, so embracing of queer rights, so embracing of pro-abortion language that it can forced him, and this is again his language, not mine, that it forced right. him to give up how he feels about individual candidates and it forces him to just back people who agree with his positions on marriage and agree with his positions on abortion. And that's the only thing that mattered to him. So much so that when I asked them about the Capitol, if I asked them about Mastriano or Carrie Lake, those were not things he really cared about, nor were the individual transgressions of Herschel Walker going to be things that they care about because they have already made that type of transaction. You get what I'm saying? And so like, you know, would they prefer a candidate that didn't have those kind of contradictions, they would say yes. Right. But they're not holding them accountable. They're not forcing them. They're not forcing them to change. Because even like I'm old enough, I'm incredibly old. And so is Jesse. We're both 44. We're old enough to remember when like theoretically something like this would kill a candidate. Do you think that Trump was this sea change? I think certainly he was. I think there were sea changes that happened at local and statewide levels, right? That Trump grew from, but he was the big one, you know? But I I, I mean, and, but I mean, let's remember Roy Moore, right? Like I, I remember doing a story when I was at the Globe during that Roy Moore race where I talked to Alabama pastors (laughs) who had written a letter of support saying that even if he was guilty of the sexual harassment, particularly of, uh, of young women, that was okay with them. And so I'm saying that for people you know, and a, a paid for abortion, I don't think is a is is more or less bad than what Roy, Roy Moore was accused of. But it is that for these specifically evangelical conservative Christians, those who are so concerned that America is being lost in this liberal direction, they will take on a Herschel Walker or a Roy Moore or a Donald Trump if it means stopping that liberalization, because that is the most important thing and the only thing that politically matters to them. So you're saying sort of that they are in a holy war. In their view, yes. They would say, I mean, I mean, yes. <laughs> I don't think that's a step too far, that they would consider yeah. themselves in a political holy war. And so Democrats are so far afield that they'll accept any person who agrees with their side. What is interesting to you that you're seeing? Like, what are we not seeing from, you know, like what races are interesting to you? What micro political climates are interesting to you? Tell me what is fascinating that we might be missing. Yeah, I guess to me, like one of the things I we were hoping to do with this show that I really feel and believe is like the hole that Democrats are in is so large. That is not just about these midterms, but actually about the kind of structural, political, like the governing structures of politics that put them in the deep hole. So let me say, like, even if... Like redistricting, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's take it all to be true. And there is a huge turnout for Democrats in this midterms, specifically around the idea of protecting abortion rights or protecting democracy. If they want to codify Roe v. Wade, they got to keep the House keep the Senate and add two seats, a really high bar. But even beyond that, they are in massive holes in state legislatures in most swing states. They're in massive federal judiciary holes that aren't going to really change anytime soon. And there are these backstops that grassroots Republicans have really taken over after for a long kind of 20-year focused arc that Democrats are really catching up to. And so I feel like what has become clear for me in doing this kind of reporting is not that this is some like, it's not that the midterms don't matter or, 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 or all of that, but I think Democrats should be kind of clear with themselves at just how high the bar is that they're at, that they need to clear to really be able to make those tangible changes for women seeking abortions in swing states. That's going to require overcoming state legislature right. gerrymandering. Right. That's going to require overcoming a lot of these kind of federal holes that they're in. 
And I think like if they're if we want to be honest as journalists, I feel like my core point is just telling the kind of clarity of it. I think Democrats underrate just how far they have to make up. Yes, agreed. I also am curious, like, are there any races like that mayoral in L.A. or like, I mean, are there any of these races that you're super interested in that are interesting, that would be interesting to us? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that you mentioned mayor in L.A. I think that's an interesting race. I think the places where Democrats are fighting locally, you know, I just I covered the progressive prosecutor recall in San Francisco. I think we have seen the recall go out in Philadelphia. You know, you mentioned the question of crime. I think that's where, really where those are playing out is within democratic cities. I find that back and forth deeply interesting. I find it interesting what Senate candidates are focusing on, right? We have had a, a president who's really framed this around questions of democracy, but that's not really what you see candidates running on. When you look at a Warnock or a Mandela Barnes or a Fetterman, it's really what Joe Biden ha- and Democrats have done in Congress that's really given them an ability to reach out to voters. They're not really betting on voters simply just coming out because of what, you know, because of the quote unquote big lie that Republicans believe in. They're still focusing right. on that kind of kitchen table stuff. I think that's interesting because while that might be smart and true and good in the short term, those long term democracy questions, as you well know, Molly, are core to what this political moment is, are not going anywhere. So to me, it's interesting that like what might help Democrats is really not the main course, but that those questions aren't really going away. So I think on both the local level and on the national level, it's interesting the messages to me that Democrats are using to have what might be a better midterm cycle than they expected, because it's a little, a little askew from where the Trump messages or where Joe Biden's message is, which is specifically about the about democracy and about insurrection and the like. So interesting. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I appreciate it. Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale. Extend your spine. Remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so, exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. It is 2024, and we're going to get through this together, folks. My campaign promise to all of you here on Next Question is going to be a good time the whole time, we hope. I have some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring Kris Jenner, who's got some words of wisdom for me on being a good grandmother, or in her case, a good lovey. You know, you start thinking of what you want your grandmother name to be. Like, are they going to call me grandma like I called my grandmother? So I got to choose my name, which is now Lovey. I'll also be joined by Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, to name a few. So come on in and take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. I loved it. Your energy and joy. I'm squeezing every minute I can for you out of this season of Next Question. Last question, I promise. You have to go. I have to go. (laughs) But it's been so fun. And I can't wait for you to hear it. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Maggie Haberman is a senior political reporter at The New York Times, an analyst at CNN, and the author of Confidence Men, The Making of Donald Trump and the Breaking of America. Welcome to Fast Politics, Maggie. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to have you because your book is so good. John Allen, who was a political reporter at NBC News and a frequent guest to this podcast, or hasn't been yet, but will be undoubtedly a frequent guest to this podcast. And I were talking about how it's just so readable. I love hearing that. Thank you. That's wonderful. Has he read it? Has Trump read it? Yeah. There's only one he. (laughs) No, I don't think so. (laughs) I, I, I couldn't speak to that, but I would be pretty confident saying that he has not read it. Do you think he will read it? No, I do not. 
<laughs> so you can hide lots of stuff in there. Yeah, I don't I don't think he will read it. You think AIDS will read it and sort of write coverage on it? I think his aides will tell him what they want to tell him about it, which is how they've always handled coverage relating to him. And we'll see where it goes. There's so much in this book that is like, I think, important warnings for the future. For example, a lot of really interesting early New York stuff that like I have lived through that I, you know, just the weird politics and the sort of sleaziness of New York politics, which really did create him. Yes. And and I want to give a huge hat tip to Wayne Barrett. Uh, the late great who paved the way for us all. You know, there were there are there are a lot of uh, a lot of people who have spent. I talk about this uh, in the book, who spent a lot of time forging the early years of Trump. Um, you know, Gwenda Blair, Tim O'Brien, who wrote an incredibly important book about Trump and the aughts. Harry Hurt, who wrote in the nineteen nineties. Michael D'Antonio, who wrote more recently. Wayne really covered Trump at a, a critical point, which was you know his book came out when Trump was actually back on the rise again in the early 1990s, but he captured just how corrupt every aspect of life that Trump was dealing with was. And so what I tried to do, because, you know, I'm from New York and I covered New York politics for a very long time, capture for readers all of this dysfunction that he comes from, both his familial dysfunction and environmental dysfunction and the racial strife of New York and the machine tribal politics of New York and how he exported that to Washington. And how much he expected the world was going to work like that, because he tends to think everyone is just like him. And that has continued in our politics. I'm glad you talked about that, because the thing that I'm struck by, and I feel like the thing that you I've heard you talk about in interviews and you write about this in the book, is that I feel like we in the media all of us and just normal people kind of always assume that he'll take the L, you know, and he'll just say like, it's enough. Like, I'm not going to do this. You know, I'm doing something terrible to my family and the country, but there will never be a moment like that. There will be a moment like that if he thinks that there's a reason for him to stop that relates to him, right? I mean, there will be a moment to stop if it's that he can prevent himself from getting charged criminally or everything with him is leverage. And so that's what it relates to. He never understands that whatever complaints he might have about, you know, aspects of media coverage or like when he was president and and no president likes their media coverage, but he just took it to, you know, most presidents also don't in the U.S. don't call the press the enemy of the people. He just, he treats everything as if it's all justified and kind of all flat and the same. And so people keep thinking there's going to be some moment where he gets, you know, for lack of a better word, shamed into, into changing his behavior. And that's just not going to happen. And so sort of, it's part of this kind of rolling reaction to news coverage, right? From a lot of people, it's like X didn't have the impact that his critics thought it would. So therefore there's something wrong with the coverage. Right. And it's really just that, you know, voters make the decisions in this country. Right. (laughs) A lot of what would have been disqualifying for another candidate who had not been part of the pop culture fabric for decades doesn't apply to him. So that's what I want to talk to you about. There's a tranche of people in the media, largely on the left, but sometimes on the right, that are super mad at coverage in a way that I'm always struck by this. Like your job is sort of to recount what happens. Right. My job is to get information and, and put it you know, put it in public, which uh, is really what I've what I've tried to do. And there have been plenty of stories that I've, you know, missed that I wished I had that, right. that our competitors have had. But this is, I think, just sort of a, again, to your point about being mad, is I think that he is the biggest demagogue that I can think that we have ever seen in this country, just given the scale of his support and the platform he had, and still has, frankly, even off social media. But he just, you know, he, he has enormous support within the Republican Party. And I think that his critics feel like the things that they consider disqualifying ought to be disqualifying for everybody else. And it just isn't. That's just not how it works. And reporters' jobs are to get, you know, news reporters' jobs are to get information. And that's what we try to do. The thing I've always been interested in is until now, Trumpism has not scaled, right? Like, you know, Roy Moore did not get elected, despite trying the Trump playbook and in Alabama, a very red state. So now we have these midterms where we have a bunch of, I mean, Herschel Walker is the most obvious example, right? Herschel Walker has a lot of Trumpy problems, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, probably more 
than Trump has. I would argue this is pretty different, to be honest. Yeah, please do. Yeah, I mean, I think, and, and to be clear, Molly, I'm not sure it's going to matter in terms of- Right, no, I'm not either. Opinions. I think yeah. that we're going to see what the, what the bar is in terms of what the voters will tolerate. But Trump is a different phenomenon because of what I said before, which is that he has been part of, you know, he's been so defined for so long, right? He made himself synonymous with wealth between The Art of the Deal and then The Apprentice. And one of the things I read about is how striking it was to me in 2016 in the Iowa caucuses, how people told me they were caucusing for him. And one man said, I watched him run his business. He meant The Apprentice. (laughs) The Apprentice was reality (laughs) television, but, you know, the line between news and entertainment for, it was actually Roger Stone who said this to me once upon a time, the line between news and entertainment is thin for viewers on the other side of the television and people who are not in the business. And so everybody has not had that, right? Roy Moore did not have that. Herschel Walker has more of it. He's a, he's a sports star and he's more of a known quantity, but I just don't know whether this impacts everybody else. I do think the candidates get further than they would otherwise since then. But I, I have to say, I think some of that, and Trump sort of acknowledged this in, in an interview where he he mentioned Herschel Walker and then talked about how times have changed and how reactions have changed. I think some of this started pre-2015 with the Tea Party and just how angry. And, and remember, I, I mean, my, my whole theory of the case is that Trump has seized on Tea Party energy and he didn't create it, but he fueled it and benefited from it. Right, right, right. No question. There was so much anger at the mainstream media among Republicans after the 2012 election, which is, has always been a little strange because there's Republicans who hated Mitt Romney and yet they hate the media because of Romney coverage. But there's been so much antipathy that I, I think that it was changing already. Talk to me about the Trump, Ivanka, Jared stuff, because that's super interesting. Which part? That they had, he might have fired them. I mean, do you think that is, uh, you know, can we talk about that? So, you know, I was a little surprised that this was the thing he seized on. I guess I'm not really when I think about it just uh, to criticize just because it involves his his daughter and it's an easy thing for him to say is not true, uh, even though. I stand by the reporting. I had multiple sources on it. But we reported in real time that he had been talking about having Jared Navaka leave. There was a, a there were several instances where he was preparing to dismiss Kushner and it would have required she would have gone with him. He would say to her, Why do you want to be here? You know, it was it was sympathetically voiced. But Kushner was getting a lot of bad headlines during the right. Mueller investigation. Trump would ask John Kelly and Don McGahn, the White House counsel, to help export them. And they would decline because they would basically say, you know, you're not going to back us if we do this. <laughs> and when they come to you and we just don't want to be in that position. And in one instance, there was a tweet that Trump was preparing to send saying they were leaving. And Kelly stopped him saying, you know, as many people would, you, you don't handle things this way with your family. <laughs> and then Trump, who's just incredibly conflict averse, did not appear to have the conversation. Trump considered bombing Mexico? This is a story that is both about Trump's, you know, views of aggression and also Trump's uh, impressionability based on how who he thinks someone is. One of the things that was a pretty striking through line in my reporting, Molly, was that just how much he really didn't understand who did what in the government. I mean, this is why I know there's this theory that he's really learned, but he he really hasn't. Right. Now, yeah. You know, by 2019, he still had no idea who ran the Office of Legislative Affairs for him. And, you know, he tried giving the charge to one aide, thinking he was taking it from a different aide, but the different aide wasn't actually the person who ran it. And it was, anyway. So he's in a meeting related to fentanyl crossing the, the southern border. And it's a it's a drug meeting. And in this meeting is Brett Girouard, who was a, an admiral in the Public Health Services Corps. I'm probably mangling the actual title, but he would wear his dress uniform. It's a commissioned corps. It's not a part of the armed forces. Right. Which is really important. But so Girouard is in this meeting and he suggests, uh, uh, according to people familiar with what happened, he suggests putting, quote unquote, lead to target which is a a term for bombing. And Trump gets infatuated with this idea and starts asking Mark Esper, the (laughs) Secretary of Defense, about bombing Mexico. And he talks about Patriot missiles and, you know, you wouldn't use Patriot missiles. And so it's a, it's a story of, I mean, but this is, it's, you know, it ends up sounding funny, but it's really serious. This is how you, this is how you can end up with war. Correct. You can accidentally find yourself in a pretty dangerous conflict. Trump worried about Ghislaine Maxwell said about him. He was just going to go. <laughs> yeah. He was in a meeting with campaign aides and she had pretty recently been picked up by the FBI. And the New York Post ran a story saying that she was going to, quote unquote, name names. And he starts talking about the story and he says, did you see that in the Post the other day? 
And he says, did she say anything about me? Which AIDS took as meaning Ghislaine and not, not yeah. the orth- author of the story, who was also a woman. He knew Jeffrey Epstein. He knew her. You know, there's, a, there's an anecdote in the book that's based on reporting from Mark Singer, who was writing, wrote a really remarkable piece for The New Yorker that in the 90s that I would urge everyone to read. But Ghislaine, uh, I believe, was on, on the plane for this uh, anecdote that he writes about in the story on her way down to Florida with him. These are people who he knew socially. There's obviously, you know, there's pictures of them, but right. he just, in these meetings, he will reveal what's on his mind. Yeah. It seems like Trump used Rudy as his man, right? Like his sort of Roger Stone, you know, his sort of fixer. And now I feel like Rudy, Roger Stone, and also Michael Cohen originally sort of all had that same role. You tell me if I'm wrong. You're not wrong. I mean, an old friend of Trump's once said to me that Trump likes lawyers who will do anything. Right. He sees no difference between, you know, the attorney general who works for the government and, you know, Rudy, who was a personal lawyer. Right. And he likes having fixers. You know, there's a, I write about how Andrew Stein, the former New York City Council president, who's known Trump forever, at one point was complaining to Trump about why do you keep Michael Cohen around? Because a, a lot of people in Trump's orbit clashed with Michael Cohen back in the day. And Trump, you know, said something with the effect of he has his purpose or he has a purpose. And, and that's how Trump sees all of these people. And it's really how he saw Rudy. But it's just so weird because they really weren't friends, Giuliani and Trump, decades earlier. They, there was It was a transaction. And Giuliani helped Trump, and I don't get into this in the book, but Giuliani helped Trump with, um, uh, in way, or at least people suspected he helped him, with a building that he was trying to build near the UN, and they engaged with each other. But, but Giuliani didn't treat Trump or think of Trump particularly seriously. What has emerged since, it's, you know, they've known each other a long time, and they come from the same place. And I would argue that in terms of racial paranoia, Giuliani was ki- was kind of a proto-Trump. Mm. It's a very different thing. They they were not the same person, and they were not pals. So interesting. What did you learn writing this book? Because you knew a lot already. I learned a lot, actually. I mean, I I you know I learned a lot of new. I wanted to. I just I just want to um, make one thing clear that I think is really important. This book is intended as a character study, and it's right. I wanted to paint a larger, fuller portrait of him and of the world and that he came, you know, and that definitionally meant that I learned some new things along the way. But the goal was was a, a story as opposed to just sort of individual anecdotes and, and so forth. Those move the story along. I learned new things about the depths of the kinds of racist statements he would make over time. Right. And I was pretty surprised. I had additional affirmation as to how calculating he is, you know, even though he's not strategic, he is in the moment calculating. I would say those are the main things. And then there were new things that I learned about the presidency, like him flushing documents down the toilet, which I did not know while he was president. And you did actually release that, made a real point to release that before the book came out. I released it eight months before the book came out. That's correct. And I think that was a real case of like you wanting to get the information out there because you thought there was a legal precedent. I thought it was really important. Yeah. And I think that's really important and also quite disgusting that he's... How is the plumbing handling that? It wasn't handling it well. That was part of why I found out about this. (laughs) Thank you, Maggie. I hope you'll come back. I definitely will. Thank you, Molly. John Anzalone is a pollster at Impact Research. Welcome to Fast Politics, John. Hey, Molly. Very excited to have you so close to the midterms. Am I allowed to call you Biden's pollster? You can call me anything you want. I think that that would be fair. (laughs) Okay. Or you could call me Gretchen Whitmer's pollster or Steve Sislak or, I mean, I could keep going Sheldon Whitehouse, you know, AARP. (laughs) A lot of those people have been on my previous podcast. So, but anyway, so I'm curious to talk to you. We're in this like 30, is it like 32 days now? It's something like that. If I keep track of them, then it'll just, you know. Make you crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So what are you seeing trend wise? I mean, I've had this idea because I've read something that got me like obsessed with this idea. And now everyone I've interviewed, I've asked about it and they all think I'm wrong. But I have this idea that this is like chaos elections where things are moving in a very weird way. So I would actually say that chaos isn't the word I would use. Here's how I see this election cycle is that D.C., and talking heads love predictability. 
And, you know, elections and midterms are very predictable. Like if you are a Republican president and in the midterms, you know, the Democrats do great. And if you're a Democratic president and, you know, you're in the midterms, the Republicans do great. And there's actually pretty good data in modern history that it's like if the president, regardless of Democrat or Republican, you know, his job rating is under 50 percent, which is Biden's is, although we've his, his job rating has gotten better over the last couple of months, that on average, you lose 37 to 40 seats in the House. And I can't remember the number in the Senate, but maybe it's five. And so everyone loves that predictability. And that's kind of how this election cycle began, that Democrats we're going to get their ass kicked. And we really believed it all the way up until about May 4th. I either had you or someone you work with on around April or May, and it was like we just despaired the whole time. It was just a death watch is what it was. And the fact is, is that, you know, there's all of these different tensions in this election. And why I wouldn't call it chaos is because it's actually been a straight line. I would call it the toss-up election. Like every battleground state for basically Senate and governor are toss-ups. But I think that for us to put, we really got, you got to put it in context because the generic ballot, when you have 70% of Americans thinking the country's going in the wrong direction and 70% (laughs) having, giving it a negative job rating for the economy and over 50% believing there's, there's a recession, et cetera, et cetera. People you know, are generic mad. ballot advantage for Republicans should be plus eight, plus 10, and it's dead even. And so these tensions that there's all these confluences, and it's like it's like Three Rivers Stadium in Pittsburgh, you know, where the three rivers merge. What are they? The Ohio, the Monongahela, and I can't remember the third one, damn it. But my point is, is that you have all these confluences of things that normally do not happen to give you a competitive environment. And so on the Democratic side, you know, why I use May 1 and May 4th is like on May 1, there was despair. And on May 4 was the leak of the SCOTUS opinion to overturn Roe v. Wade. Then you had Buffalo and then you had Uvalde. Then you had, I think, June 9th, you had the January 6th hearing start. America learned a lot of new things about what was going on. And all these Republicans are like, you know, defending the the, the uh, insurrectionists. And then June 24th, boom, reality comes, not hypothetical overturning. And so you have all of that, as well as President Biden actually getting his agenda passed with, you know, the bipartisan gun bill, the CHIPS Act, which brings, you know, the supply chain back from uh, overseas in China and the Inflation Reduction Act, which does all these wonderful things. And so by August, it's the Republicans who are on the defensive. The the Democrats have a message, et cetera, et cetera. But when Labor Day bell rings, I've been doing this a long time. And the one thing that always happens on Labor Day is people put their jerseys on, right? Right. And Republicans kind of always consolidate their vote. And maybe more importantly, a billion dollars was spent in September on Senate races. So Republicans were alive again. Like they, you know, they were beating up Mandela or they're beating up Tim Ryan or they were competing back and forth in their narrative. And so Republicans come home, they start spending money, the races get real in a dialogue and there's really tough headwinds for Democrats. So you have one confluence is the headwinds. One confluence are these outside things that happen, row, guns, you know, democratic accomplishments. And what's the third confluence? It's the crazies on the Republican Party. They just did a terrible job nominating. And so you have Oz at 60% unfavorable. You have J.D. Vance. You have Masters. You have Ted Budd. When you have rivers that meet, it's all muddy, right? Right. right, So this is kind of the muddy toss-up election. And it's really at this point, when you have the Herschel Walkers of the world against a great candidate like Warnock, you really have headwinds versus head cases. That's literally what's going on here. Oh, interesting. The headwinds of the Democrats and the subpar candidates of Republicans. And there's all these people out there who have to make a decision. You know, right now, I would say that, you know, 65 percent of all, you know, whites in Georgia are still voting for Herschel. Will that change over the most recent one? Well, guess what? Judge Roy Moore got, you know, 68 percent of whites 
against Doug, Doug Jones. He won, right? He got just enough of them. But that gives you the context of when people put on their jersey, they also put on blinders. Right, and so right. there's just going to be this grudge match, right? And on election day, I think everyone right now kind of understands that we're in a toss-up environment where there's difficult headwinds. We have great candidates, good money, and a really good message on the positive and the negative side. And we're all waiting to see what happens. Warnock is up against Walker. Walker has had all of these October surprises. He is continually doing these ads in Georgia where he talks to the camera and says, uh, Warnock is cutting funding for the police. It's not true, but he's doing it and it works. And then all the ads are crime, 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 crime. Why? Warnock has a ton of money. Why is Warnock just not getting in there and debunking or is it too soon for that? No, no, no. I think he is. Listen, crime is a big issue right now. You see it against um, Mandela Barnes in Wisconsin. You see it against Fetterman, who is chairman of the parole board, right? These are like easy things. You know, you see it right now in a race no one's watching, but the Republicans are hitting the former Supreme Court Justice Sherry Beasley on basically overturning a pedophilia case. So you're You know, again, it's not just pure crime. It's often there's often an angle to it that intersected with that Democrat's life. Right. I mean, Fetterman was the head of a parole board. You know, Sherry Beasley was a chief justice. So she had to rule on cases, et cetera, et cetera. I think that there's not a Democrat out there who doesn't do well defending themselves on crime, a la what Joe Biden did in 2020. I mean, we took no shit from Trump. We tried to say we were defending. We just like not the truth. We're against defund. Matter of fact, you know, we have uh, money, more money in there for police, yada, yada, yada. And you, you pivot and you move. And I think all of these candidates do a good job uh, doing that. I don't think that there's any a time when we don't fight. And a matter of fact, if I can bring one thing up, which really just maybe aggravates me yeah, more please. than anything. Yeah, let's hear it. Well, I mean, fellow Democrat Gavin Newsom, when he says that we don't fight, that Democrats right. have to fight. Well, right. you got to, you know, I'm sorry, but that is, that doesn't pass a smell test. Right, right, and right. Go out there and say helpful things because there's not a race I'm doing right now or watching where there's a Senate candidate, Democrat, Republican, or, or um, governors or congressional that are not fighting like hell. Democrats are out there fighting like hell right now. Right. And by the way, so is our president. Like right. he is out there killing it. And Democrats are fighting right now. And for anyone to say that we are not fighting is absolutely ridiculous. And by the way, the reason that we are dead even in the generic ballot and every race is a toss up is because we're out there fighting and we should be getting our asses kicked by plus eight or plus 10 in the generic ballot. So everyone needs to just kind of keep the expectations in in check and put this cycle in context that the predictable thing was for them to win 37 or 40 seats in the House and five seats in the the Senate. And we are keeping this a competitive, competitive election cycle. Quite frankly, you know, good for Democrats. Right. I mean, in my mind, the situation with uh, the situation with Newsom is that Newsom is trying to run for president. And and I say that neither negatively or positively, but he's just coming. I mean, he's running ads in Florida like you don't do that before a midterm unless you have some grand plans and designs. Right. That means it's negatively. I don't get it stuck on it. I just think that someone has to stand up and say no you know, you're wrong. Quit playing politics with your presidential campaign. And Democrats are fighting like hell. And the and the fact is, is that the reason that we have all of these toss ups is because we are fighting like hell. Yeah, no, I agree. And I appreciate that. We get caught in the feedback loop of self-loathing after camp after campaigns. And I don't want to project what's going to happen. But the fact is, is that, you know, if we hold Republicans to 20 seats in the House. And I'm not saying that that's what it's going to be. I'm just giving an example. We have cut in half what the historical trend is. Yeah. No. And and listen, I, I think there's a really good point here, but I, I'm curious. One of the things that Biden has done, which I actually think is kind of great and unusual, is that he's allowed candidates who are running in red districts to run against him. 
you know, I think he's been generous in a way. I mean, we had Max Rose on this podcast. He is running in a, in a very red district in Staten Island. You know, he w- I, I mean, I do think that he that there's sort of more of a he's not a vengeful guy. You can criticize him in a way that a lot of other presidents you haven't been able to. But I think that there is a bigger point in the 2022 election cycle when we look at it historically after the election, which is one of the reasons Democrats are competitive is because our president of the United States, who is the leader of the Democratic Party, and I think does a good job of it, actually passed an amazing agenda in 2022. Right. right? He got a lot done. Yeah. I mean, these things were important. I mean, I, if he didn't get, you know, chips passed and IRA passed and, and things like that, quite frankly, and May 1, we didn't have those. And it was tough to have a positive message. We right. got, you know, he got his agenda passed and no one thought he could do it. No, and everyone no, had given up on him. And I think the bigger point of 2022 uh, vis-a-vis President Biden, quite frankly, turns out to be his leadership and his vision on his agenda, which gave all these congressional Democrats or candidates really important bullets in their TV ads. You're not getting any arguments from me here. And we've talked a lot about that. And you are in a world here where he's done a lot. But the question is more like, I'm curious, and this is for my own edification as much as anything, there's such a baked in idea that Republicans are good on crime, but there's never any like actual questions about policy. For example, so Herschel Walker, Ted Cruz, everyone is defending Herschel Walker, including, I'm not sure that this is such a great look, Newt Gingrich. And Ted Cruz said, well, judge Herschel Walker on his policy. Yeah, well, again, I think that they, I think Herschel Walker's message right now is judge me on my redemption and judge me on grace. And I think that that is a signal to evangelicals to give him a pass. The problem was when he wrote his book on redemption. Right. He wrote the book a year before he paid for the abortion. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Listen, I, I'm not a big judger of people who have, right. you know, like, right, we're all frail humans and, and et cetera. And speak for yourself. But yes, you know, I believe in redemption. But he now is kind of like beyond, you know, trusting, if you will. Right. I'll kind of like go be on the side of, you know, his son, Christian, before I go on, on, on Herschel's side. But anyway, it's again, we haven't seen kind of new polls and we're going to see them. And my guess is it's probably going to be a dead even race or maybe Warnock will have an advantage. But this has been, again, my point is this has been a straight line election. Movement is glacial here. Right. Republicans consolidated their vote after spending a billion, you know, half a billion dollars. They probably spent half of it. Right. This is not unusual. And everyone in DC kind of like, oh my God, you know, look what's happened. Well, what's happening is what's happened every post-Labor Day in my 15 cycles as a pollster, which is there's some consolidation because people start spending or candidates start spending a lot of money. So there's no freaking out here. This is what right. normally happens. Um, I think that people will start saying this is just like 2014, where August was a good month for Democrats. Right. You know, September, there was, you know, consolidation and it looked, you know, uh, look better for Republicans. And then the bottom fell out for Democrats. I don't think we're in a bottom falling out election cycle because everyone right. has put their jersey on and dug in their feet. Their, their feet right, right? Right. We're in overtime. Yeah, This is definitely an overtime game already. And I always say that, you know, my analogy, which no one probably will like, <laughs> I'm an Alabama fan. And, you know, last year's Iron Bowl where they play Auburn. Right. Well, Alabama was ranked third. Auburn was unranked. Well, in this case, you know, the Democrats were Auburn. They came in there and they almost won it. And they took Alabama, the number three ranked team, to four overtimes. Democrats are literally taking Republicans into overtime. Like they are supposed to literally walk into this election and wipe us out. And we are keeping them close. I love you, but I can't understand what you're talking about. I don't understand sports at all. But I just want have one last question. There are a lot of people who are listening to this podcast, like my husband, Matt Greenfield, who want to give money, want to support our big Democrats. What races should they go for? Oh, I mean, you know, geez, I can't play favorites, but I mean, come on, man. Put it this way. I think the race that um, will get more attention in, in October as these other races kind of, you know, move around is North Carolina. I love the I love the Sherry Beasley. Sherry Bud. Beasley. You know, yeah. Give money to Sherry Beasley. I don't work for her. 
But right. my point is, is that race has been dead even the entire year. It's basically going to be, you know, you know, it hasn't been like a four month race where there's just been this big back and forth. And I think she's a great candidate, former Supreme Court justice. So she has real heft and weight to her. Right. Uh, and she's really good. She's a good candidate and her TV commercials are good. And Ted Budd is a guy who called the insurrectionists on January 6th, you know, patriots, right? And he sponsored bills to do a national ban on abortion. So watch that race. That is my kind of Georgia 2020 race where Biden won and and no one thought it could happen. So I, I think that that is without a doubt the race. And the fact is, is that I think most people believe that Georgia's going to a runoff. And so Warnock is gonna need your money in a runoff to beat Herschel. And I think he can do it. And it may be deja vu all over again and be the race that decides the Senate. I hadn't even thought to be anxious about that. Thank you, John. Last question. Trust the polls. Yes or no? Yes. Just watch where the candidate is, not the margin. Great. Good deal. And now your moment of fuckery. Molly Jung fast. Hi, Jesse. I hear we're going to talk about a subject we're not going to like. Yeah. As someone who has two seniors, two senior dogs who are 13 years old, which is, ni- I think, 90 in dog years or 12 years old. They're quite old. And a rescue puppy who is two. This is like absolutely the fucking just gets me so upset. And you have Clank. Love that pup. So Dr. Oz, Mr. Abortion is Murder. Well, you'll be surprised to hear, or maybe won't be, that he actually did murder a bunch of dogs, 300 plus, and also bunnies, and also dogs, bunnies, gave them heart stuff. He actually, Oz's employer at the time, was ordered to pay a $2,000 penalty for violating the Animal Welfare Act. I mean... I'm sorry, but like imagine how bad it was that one dog was kept alive for a month, continuing experimenting on her during her unstable, painful condition. He could be the next senator from Pennsylvania. So he gets a mighty fuck you for torturing animals from me and a mighty moment of fuckery. There is literally no person lower than someone who tortures animals or who is in any way involved with that. So they get a hearty fuck you from me. The way I think of it is we were mad at Mitt Romney for one act of this. But 329? I mean, the dog survived, right? I mean, I'm not, I would never do it. It's certainly a terrible, but anyway, the point is, you know, it's disgusting. It's revolting. It is our moment of fuckery today. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. More Than a Movie is back with season two. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.